0: teaching the word of God among them. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen.
1: Good morning, everybody. It's good to see all of you. Uh, It's good to see the sanctuary being filled up. I think it's time for me now to have a conversation with Pastor Xiong and uh, create a 9 o'clock children's ministry. So I'll, I'll, I'll uh, schedule in that soon, and hopefully we'll, get have, some, we'll have something um, started in a few weeks. All right, well, today we're uh, reflecting upon a rather fragile period in Paul's life where he was very likely worn down and in need of some encouragement from the God who called him to a life of suffering. And the purpose of this message is to give each of you hope as you continue on in your own personal journeys, which are filled with the unique trials and hardships God has purposed for you to endure through. So may it be a time of encouragement for all of us. Um, I have a simple outline today, uh, just two parts. Part one, the burdens of a weary traveler. And part two, God's encouragement for the weary traveler. uh, First, it's for the Apostle Paul, of course, how God encouraged Paul. But uh, I trust that God would encourage all of us through this message as well. Part one, the burdens of a weary traveler. Let's remember that Paul has very good reason to feel worn down since this is his second missionary journey. His first journey was no cakewalk, if you remember. There there was sickness he had to endure early on, and and soon after that, the young John Mark chose to abandon the team, which was uh, very discouraging for him. Then he had almost lost his life at the city of Lystra because a Jewish mob dragged him out of the city and stoned him, attempting to take his life, but God spared him. That was just the first trip. Now, some of us may still have this romanticized view of a mission trip, but that this, this was the first, this, this was what a mission trip was like back in those days, and, and none of us would have been able to survive that, including myself. I confess, you know, I I get seasick very easily and you will never see me on a boat for that reason, right? I could never endure such, such a trip. You know, on this second trip, remember that there was a major falling out between Paul and Barnabas, which led them to go their own separate ways. And so imagine, right, your closest friend, right, your old mentor was no longer there to support you. Right? I mean, if, if this happened to me, I would not be doing so well. Now, sometimes when we think about the Apostle Paul, it, it's very easy for us to view him as some kind of superhuman apostle, but I'm sure that Barnabas' departure was not easy for him to bear. And what was his actual journey like up to this point? Well, in Philippi... We were told that Paul and Silas were publicly beaten with rods and thrown into prison. I'm not sure what's worse, being stoned or being beaten with rods. But they were beaten this time with rods and they were sent to prison. And in Thessalonica, the, the Jews formed an organized mob and, and not only drove them out of their city, but they followed Paul all the way down to Berea and drove him out of that city as well that's how determined they were to get after him and then in Athens which we covered last time Paul spoke to the intellectual elites of his day at the famous Mars Hill only to experience meager results I mean how discouraging would that have been and today we see him venturing into this great city called Corinth all by himself. I mean, why was he alone? Right? I thought he was part of this team. Where did his team members go? Well, if you've forgotten, Silas and Timothy were supposed to join him in Athens, but they were delayed in their arrival. Right? They had other business to attend to. So Paul was alone in Athens, and he's still alone in Corinth. And if Corinth was a small town... Maybe it wouldn't have mattered so much, but Corinth was one of the largest cities in the Roman world, second only to Rome itself. And I'm thinking this could be one reason why the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians in his letter, 1 Corinthians 2, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling, he confesses to them early on in the ministry. Because, I mean, try to put yourself in the apostle's shoes, right? He was the first missionary ever to enter into this great city of Corinth, right? To win people for Christ all by himself. He was alone. I mean, it would have felt like a David and Goliath situation where he was was asked to do the impossible, right? I mean, I would not have been able to handle such pressure. I would have been scared too. I mean... Does it surprise you if I said that fear is something I still struggle with in ministry? Even though my responsibilities here are nothing compared to what the Apostle Paul had to endure? Right, there are the two most common fears we all face, right? The fear of failure and the fear of people. It's like, Who wants to risk failure? Who wants to live their lives being threatened of their livelihood, right? I mean, who wants to be mocked for your faith by the intellectual elite class and be called anti-intellectual, which is so common today. No one wants those things. I don't want those things, right? It doesn't matter if you're ministering in Corinth or in Fairfax. We can all relate to the kind of fear Paul was experiencing. And on top of that, Paul was basically... Broke. And so the fact that Paul was a tent maker who had to work to make a living is mentioned for the first time in his story. Now, given all, all of these burdens Paul had to bear, I, I want you to now notice how God slowly begins to encourage Paul, right? This, this very weary traveler who is unsure what to do next. God intervenes and he begins to encourage him, which brings us to our second part, part two. God's encouragement for the weary traveler. Let's consider these things. I have three main points I want to highlight for you. Number one, God encourages us by surprising us with new relationships. Look at the first few verses. Let me read. Verse one. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. In other words, they were basically driven out of the city, Rome. And so Paul went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. He stayed with them, and he worked, and they shared the same trade. You know, when you first read this, it may seem like a coincidence that Paul found Aquila, who happened to share the same trade, and who happened to be kind enough to provide Paul with housing. But as Christians, don't we know, brothers and sisters, that in God's economy, there is no such thing as coincidence, ultimately, because all things are governed by his providence. Amen? The truth is that Paul did not just happen to find Aquila and Priscilla. God knew what Paul needed. So it was God who found Aquila And introduced him to Paul as a gift. That's how we understand the sovereignty of God in all things. Brothers, sisters, how often have you experienced something similar in your own lives? Where you were near your breaking point and about to give up. But someone unexpected appears in your life to serve as a timely encouragement for you to hold fast, and to not give up. And not only do you gain a friend, but you gain a true brother or sister in Christ. Hasn't that happened to you? I believe that's part of what Jesus meant when he said in Matthew 19, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. When he says that we will receive a hundredfold, I think included in that is that we will be blessed with greater numbers of brothers and sisters that we can call family. Wouldn't you agree, church, that though much damage has been done through the past two years, At the same time, God has also encouraged us by surprising us with new relationships, right? And new people who have been willing to share the burdens of life with us. If God has surprised you with such people in your life, say amen. All right, louder than 9 o'clock. 9 o'clock is that? They're more blessed people, I guess, than 11 (laughs) Amen, right? It's true for me as well. It would have been very difficult for me to survive this season if God did not encourage me through such people personally. People who are hungering, thirsting for the Lord. Despite the pressures not to come, they they seek out the church, seek out a place to worship, seek out fellowship. Fellowship. You know how encouraging that's been to witness that. And so God surprises us with these relationships, and we're encouraged by such a gift. Number two, God encourages us through the generosity of believers. In verse 5, we're told that Silas and Timothy finally arrived from Macedonia. They finally come. And their arrival allows Paul to now fully occupy himself, it says, with the work of preaching and teaching the Word of God. I want you to turn your attention to verse 5. This is how Luke puts it. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the Word. You know what that means? That means prior to their arrival, Paul was not occupied with the Word. It means that he was Busy. You know, his rhythm was this. When Silas and Timothy were not there, he had to work as a tent maker, probably throughout the week, probably like six days. And then on the Sabbath, he engaged with the Jews, right, to testify of Christ. That was his weekly rhythm. But the likely scenario was that Silas and Timothy had collected sufficient funds from believers all across the Macedonian region, right? They collected the funds, and they brought those funds to Paul in order to support the ministry, in order to pay for housing and food, you know? And as a result, Paul was able now to fully occupy himself with ministering God's Word to people. And so we can say that God encouraged Paul through the generosity Of believers. No doubt, sometimes, bivocational ministry is necessary. I hope you're familiar with that term. Bivocational means, you know, a pastor who, let's say, works at Ponte House, (laughs) and then you know, busy throughout the week, and then he comes on the weekend to minister. And by the way, since we're You know, we devoted this day to be a day of encouragement. Um, Can we encourage the worship team? (laughs) You know, that that last piece they did was, like, masterful. Don't you think? It was, like, truly on point. Give them (laughs) an encouragement for putting in so much good work. I mean, the electric guitar was truly electric. I know know that's corny, but I I had to say it. Uh, I think ever since he who decided to dress up appropriately and decently, I think the whole... The whole worship team just elevated the quality of their music. It wasn't in my notes. Where am I now? Um, uh, Okay. Sometimes sometimes bivocational ministry is necessary, but I I do think it's important that there be preachers and teachers who labor full-time to do the work of ministry. I mean, just ask any of our pastors who are currently doing bivocational ministry. I mean, with the exception of Pastor David, because you know, he does view Ponte House as a ministry, which is a good thing, all of our other pastors would rather be full-time pastors if they had the choice. Because you know, doing bivocational ministry does divide your attention. And during certain weeks, you know, your job may demand too much of your attention. Right? and so you just can't focus on the word of god as much or to prayer or to ministering to people. And so I believe that we should do our very best as a church, right, to get to a point where we could at least be in a position to offer a full-time living wage to our pastors whether they want to accept it or not, you know, who knows, but at least to get to that point I think it would be a healthy thing and a noble goal to have if you didn't know, uh, I'm full time and Pastor Jake was full time. The others are essentially bivocational, okay? But God does encourage us through the generosity of believers. Thirdly, God encourages us by speaking to us directly through his word. How can we ignore that? God speaks to Paul. You know, uh, but let me, let me set it up by having you look at verse 6 with me. In verse 6, we learn that once Paul fully devotes himself to ministering God's word, I mean, he, he does so first for the sake of the Jews, right? His pattern is always like Jews first and then Gentiles. So he keeps on giving his, his Jewish brethren like a second chance and a third chance and a fourth He keeps on you know, but now he's all in, right? He's full time now, and he's, he's, he's going strong, right, and ministering God's word to his Jewish brethren. But the reaction is this it says that the Jews begin to strongly oppose him and even revile him. There's like hatred now spewing from their hearts against him. And that should never surprise us, right? Because the forces of darkness will always push strongly against the light of God's truth. It's like, you know, where there's little to no opposition, it's because the light of God's truth is obscured in some way. So don't don't be so comfortable if if you don't face much opposition in life. It, It could be because the light of God's truth is obscured in your life. You know, one of my pastor friends put it this way. When you contextualize your faith perfectly... You don't get the crowd's fawning applause. Rather, you get put on a Roman cross. Or in Paul's case, you eventually get your head lopped off. I do believe that it's possible to share things about God that are true, but in a way that poses absolutely no threat to the life of the unbeliever. Kind of like what Stephen Colbert did this past week. And look, I think there are times where you may be called to speak in such a generalized way about your faith and in, in some, you a know, very safe and non-threatening way. But I want you to consider the simple fact that every time Paul spoke as a missionary and as an evangelist to his culture or to whatever audience he was in front of, there was some opposition. No matter what the audience was, you can't ignore that. And this Jewish audience was no exception. They strongly opposed his message. And, and this was Paul's response to them, finally. You know, after giving them like a third chance and a fourth chance, and a <laughs> he finally says in, in verse six, well, it says, He shook out his garments and said to them, Essentially, I'm done. <laughs> Your blood, beyond your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. If they had Twitter back then, the Twitter world would have gone berserk, accusing Paul of, you know, anti-Semitism or racism of some kind. But if if you think that Paul was being heartless here with his words, you would be mistaken. Romans chapter 9 actually captures Paul's heart very well. Uh, this, that chapter in Romans, it's believed that, that Paul wrote that chapter while he was in Corinth. Probably not at this point, but many believe that it was during his third missionary journey. But, but this is what he was feeling in his heart as he was witnessing his Jewish brethren rejecting the gospel. He writes, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Catch this. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Not just any anguish. Unceasing anguish. Never-ending anguish. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, referring to his Jewish brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And so this tells us that he was deeply distressed and was grieving over the fact that his fellow Jews were rejecting Christ repeatedly. And it's to this discouraged and distressed Paul, to whom God speaks, In a vision. First God says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Don't be silent. That's the command, right? Don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent. You know, whenever God speaks a command, it's because there's something within us that wants to do the exact opposite, right? Otherwise, why would he say it? In Paul's case, God said, don't be afraid. Why? Because Paul was afraid. And God said, go on speaking and do not be silent. Why? Because Paul was tempted to no longer speak. And he wanted to revert back to just being his introverted self and just live a quiet life. I have no doubt that Paul is an introvert. (laughs) I think that would have been his preference. This goes to show that everyone has a breaking point, even the great Apostle Paul. You know, it's, it's not easy to preach anywhere. But out of all the places I've preached, I have personally found it to be the most difficult to preach in places like New York City. I don't know how Pastor David survived that city for multiple years what he did. Barely. <laughs> because that culture is so much looser and there are topics, there are many more topics that are considered to be taboo, right? too risky to bring up. And if you do bring it up, your, your ministry is going to be in jeopardy. But about 10 years ago, I don't know the exact date, I didn't look it up, but let's say about 10 years ago, it's roughly the case, I was invited to preach at a men's retreat, and they had me preach at their Sunday service to cap off the retreat as well. And so I was probably like slept one or two nights at the retreat center, and then we, you know, drove to the church, and I, I gave a Sunday message. And um, I remember the message being the one I titled Overcoming Ahaz. Syndrome. Some of you might remember that message because I gave that one to you as well. And I defined Ahaz syndrome as doing what you can to survive and to succeed in this world while rejecting a life of faith in the Lord. Basically being a pragmatist, right? Just doing what you can to survive, right? And not not cause any trouble, essentially. Kind of going with the flow, that mindset. That's exactly what King Ahaz did during his time. And so I touched upon some of the more hot button issues of the day at the time, as sort of application. And you know, at the time there was this intense battle going on over the definition of marriage. And so I mentioned something as basic as: you know, you know what, Christians should should not compromise their belief on what. Marriage is, right? I thought that was very just basic, a basic thing to say. No, 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 but not for New Yorkers. (laughs) At least some of them. One brother asked me afterwards, hey, pastor, uh, what's the big deal? You know, as as I was greeting people at the door. And I, I essentially told him that a society, a nation cannot survive for too long when it's not built upon what is actually true. And when something as foundational to society as marriage is stripped of its true meaning, that's when his society begins to unravel and essentially self-destruct. And he was baffled at the thought. But it's been about, like I said, a decade now since I had that conversation and I feel even more strongly about what I said now than ever before especially now seeing how our country has become that much more unstable over the years as it's been rejecting truth even the most basic kinds so brothers and sisters do not be afraid but go on speaking Right? do not be silent because without God's Word preserved in our hearts and in our homes and in our churches and in our world, there is no hope for anyone. The second thing God does and the, the second thing He says is He gives specific reasons why Paul should not be afraid and keep on speaking. Right? He says, first, you know command is, don't be afraid, keep on speaking, don't be silent is the command. And he gives the reason why he should keep on speaking. And the first reason he gives is, for I am with you. That's why, Paul. I am with you. And I want that word to minister to your hearts this morning as well. Because this is God's word speaking directly to you. Wherever you are in this life, whatever struggle you have right now, whatever hardship you're facing, God is speaking to you, reminding you that he is with you. As I was reflecting upon Paul's experience in Corinth, I was reminded of the story of how God was present with Daniel's three friends when they were thrown into the great fire. You know, after Nebuchadnezzar throws Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fire... Nebuchadnezzar was amazed, wasn't he? He was was like startled because he sees three guys walking around in the fire, and then he sees a fourth figure. Say, what? I threw three. Why is there a fourth guy in there? And that fourth figure was meant to show that God was present with his people while they were in the fire. In the same way, when God tells Paul, I am with you, Paul. He doesn't mean to say that Paul's life will be easy and that he will no longer have to walk through the fire of Corinth. No, he means that he's going to be present with Paul in the fire. The reality is, God does not simply pull us out of our troubles, right? You know this. He is a God who walks beside us and perseveres us through our troubles. And the reason why we can be confident that we will be okay is because Jesus did not avoid the ultimate fire of judgment himself. He himself walked through the fire of hell, in order that we would come out unscathed. That was his work of salvation offered to us. And because he has done that for us, we can be assured that he is a God who will, of course, be present with us in these smaller fires we all experience in this life temporarily, Now we will be okay in the end. I hope you can live with that confidence. Now, with that said, this story also reveals to us sometimes God does offer his people seasons of relief where the fires of suffering die down, when the threats against us become minimal. Notice, God says to Paul, no one will attack you to harm you. Okay? It's not meant to be an absolute statement, because again, Paul later, he gets captured and his head gets lopped off, but he's saying temporarily, Paul, in Corinth, while you're here, no one will attack you to harm you, and Paul must have been so relieved to hear that word, since he must have been wondering right, whether there was going to be another mob that attacked him and, and dragged him out of the city right, to beat him to death again. Wouldn't you be anxious? I would be anxious. Like, You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And so th- this word of God was meant to relieve Paul, give him some comfort, which he needed during this time. And God sometimes does that for us as his people so we can focus on his work, the work that he's assigned us to do in a given season. Right? But that doesn't mean that's always going to be the case. One thing... One last thing I want to say before I close is that God not only says, for I am with you, but he says, essentially, Paul, don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent. Why? Because I have many in this city who are my people. That's the other reason. I have many in this city who are my people. In other words, Paul... There is still much work to be done. You know, you're not supposed to take this to mean there were already many Christians in Corinth ready to join the church and support Paul's ministry. That's not what it's saying when God says, I have many in this city who are my people. You know, the gospel had not yet been preached in this city, so there was virtually no one, even Aquila and Priscilla were likely unconverted when Paul first met them. There were no Christians. So I have many in this city who are my people means that, Paul, there are still sheep to be found. My elect, my chosen people, the people I have chosen before the foundations of the world, they're still out there scattered. And I placed you here to go find them, minister to them, bring them into the fold. That's the call. And we don't know exactly... We don't know exactly who they are, you know, as we minister, and that's okay, but that's why we're called to cast our nets wide, and we're to welcome anyone who wishes to hear about Christ and learn about Him and worship Him, and our hope is that they, too, would one day count themselves as part of God's fold, as one of the sheep that are found And it's this word from God which gives Paul the the needed encouragement to labor on in Corinth for 18 more months until a church is established. One of the most well-known churches, right? The Corinthian church. And this word ought to encourage us to persevere as well as a church here. I mean, do any of you doubt that there are still many in the DMV area who are God's sheep ready to be found? Do any of you doubt that? If there were no more sheep to be found, guess what? Jesus would have already come, and we all be in heaven now. But we're all still here. Why? Because there's still work to be done. There's still God's people to be found. Do you think that way? So, brothers and sisters, though this life is filled with various trials and hardships, and though there's much reason to fear, let's remember that God is present with us in our trials, and that he has not called us home yet because there's still much good work to be done. Amen? Let's pray together. Dear Father, regardless of our circumstances, good or bad, we all have felt weary at some point being on this Christian journey. We know what it means to be afraid and it's easy for us to grow weary, but we thank you for not remaining silent and reminding us through your living word that you are a God who stands with us in the midst of our pain and you assure us that though the fires of life may engulf us, they will never ultimately consume us. For salvation belongs to you, O God, and you have promised to rescue us from all harm. And with that confidence, we resolve to keep on speaking and to not be silenced. We will not fear, for you are with us. Thank you, Lord, for assuring us of your presence in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.